Hey family, I'm Mark. Welcome to the Kinship Collective podcast. We are ending otherness. We believe that as we share and lament and celebrate our stories and reimagine scripture together, we can grow the sense of kinship, family, togetherness, solidarity that will create a new reality for us. This week, we get to hang out with John Williams. He is the director of the Center for Racial Reconciliation at Fellowship Church. He's an extraordinary person. Our conversation is really centered around how do you continue the work of racial reconciliation? And this conversation, it's beautiful because there's a way that you would think that it might go. But as two black men sitting and talking, we end up talking about family, our children, the things we've learned along the way. It flows just beautifully. John is an incredible person. We talk about internalized racial oppression, internalized racial superiority. We talk about how do you navigate some of these relational realities of doing that work. We end up around the four agreements. And then we talk about scripture. We talk about Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42, and Jesus' invitation into agency when you feel powerless. It's a beautiful conversation. We are thrilled you're here. If you enjoy and are appreciating what you're hearing, would you subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen, share with some friends, and would you rate and review? That will help us to keep including more and more people in the conversation. Without further ado, here's John Williams. Hey family, welcome to the Kinship Collective. I'm Mark and we are ending otherness, growing solidarity by sharing and celebrating and lamenting our stories and reimagining scripture together. Ladies and gentlemen, today from South Jersey, (laughs) by way of Pasadena, the director of the Center for Reconciliation Fellowship Church, lawyer, civil rights activist, uh, Professor John Williams. Give it up for John <laughs> Williams! I don't think I've I don't think I've ever had an introduction like that. <laughs> John, you, you've, you've always deserved it, man. John, I, I'm really thrilled that uh, we get to have this conversation together. John, would you share a little bit more about who you are and, and some of the things that are important to you as it relates to who you are? <laughs> sure, sure. It's funny, as you were doing that introduction, the thought that came to my mind is I've just tried a lot of things. That sounds nice on paper, but there's, you know, I, I've done quite a few things. But um, mm. yeah, um, I grew up in South Jersey, small town called Willingboro. Our claim to fame is Carl Lewis. Um, and so um, I was not even close to as fast as he was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, moved out to California, to Pasadena, to work with Dr. John Perkins back in 1986. Uh, was on uh, was a director of their programming for a number of years. Went back to school, get, uh, finished my undergraduate degree at Berkeley, got my law degree at SC, practiced law, got married. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know, I think the the thing that I um, hold most dear is that um, I think I'm a pretty good dad, and so oh. that's that's out of all the things that I've done. Um, my kids are adults and they they kind of like me. And so I think that means wow. I did something okay. <laughs> oh man, John, that's incredible. I think like 
yeah, I feel like I have been um, doing some some healing around some of the ideas I had about like about success. And for me, like as a as a my father wasn't present in my life mm-hmm. in the ways that I needed him when I was growing up. And I just recently kind of put out a post about this, but I felt like I had to choose between presence with my family or like ambition mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, drive. And I realized, you know, nothing is either or, and there is a way right. to be ambitious and there's counterbalance. And, but for me, it was always like, I was always like really um, just, how do I say this? Precocious, careful, but not, it was like anxious and, um, mm-hmm terrified that I would um, create the same kind of pain or wound that I experienced from my father growing right. up in my children. But that created like this kind of crush the canary kind of deal mm-hmm. where my personhood, <laughs> it was like squelching that because I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like open my wings to really flex who I was in the world or mm-hmm. to try to do that because I was very much like just just care for this, take care of this. This is the thing. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of in this space where I'm awakening to both of those things at the same mm-hmm. time. And so it's funny that, you know, I would always say like, this is my, that's my number one metric of success and my right. goal. And at the same time now it's, it's opening up a little bit more. And I, so I just, I really appreciate that though. Hearing that from you, from a brother who's further along down the road, remembering what really does matter. <laughs> yeah. It's, I think it's all about embracing like all of it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. when I was younger, obviously I had this deep drive to succeed, you know, to prove whatever I was trying to prove. My parents um, separated and got divorced when I was young. My dad still lived mm-hmm. close by. Um, and then we definitely had our challenges and issues um, that we had to resolve when, when I was much older. But um but I think part of that um, always caused me to feel, because of what the, the, the norm, and I'm using air quotes, the norm of, of what a family's supposed to be, how it's supposed to function. So I always felt like I had to make sure that I gave my kids, that I created a family that I didn't have. And, and that mm. is angst producing, right? Because um, you're, you're, um, comparing yourself up with, against the standard that even in quote unquote healthy families that they don't even experience. And so kind of mm. taking that, wrapping that. And when you think of race and wrapping that around, like just the whole concept of like respectability politics, you know, I'm going to be, you know, I'm not going to, you know, Bern, uh, I think it was, um, not Bernie Mac. It was, uh, there was a comedian in the eighties. And he used to always talk about, I don't have any outside children. You know, I'm a good, I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. I don't have any outside children. He's saying it in jest, <laughs> but the, the sentiment is real for a lot of African-Americans. Um, is like, yeah, I want to make sure I'm a good dad. And which is important in and of itself. But then there's that extra layer of internalized uh, oppression and internalized, you know, that internalization of what the standard of being white and the norm and all that. So um, so I had to fight against that, you know, I mean, I, had to, um, I gave into it a lot. So I was always just like, we're going to have the perfect family, the perfect this, the perfect that. And that's just anxiety mm. and angst producing um, and unnerving. And so at some point I just said, screw it. Um, I am going to be a good dad. I am a good dad. I'm going to rest in that. And I'm going to grow and learn from from my kids. And and somehow someone gave me some great words wow. of advice when I was younger is like you grow with your kids. And so mm-hmm. how you parent when your kids are five and six 
is different than when they're 10, is different than when they're 15, is different than when they're adults, but mm -hmm. you're constantly parenting and mentoring. And so, um, so that helped me just to mature and grow as an individual, just kind of taking on that kind of way of, of parenting. Anyway, I don't know how we got on that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned that as part of, you know, your identity, you kind of rested on, on the end of that. And you talked about them liking who you were. And I appreciate that. And for me, as a dad, um, one of the things I'm realizing is that, like, we look back on videos of my first baby girl and when she was five <laughs> years old. And now my, my last baby girl, Laura Willing, is five years old. Wow. And I'm like... I was a different dad, you know, I'm, I'm right. like, I was catching up and I'm always catching up to my yeah. first baby. It doesn't matter what I read or how I prepare. <laughs> mm -hmm. She's driving me, you know, to work that, that place. And so it's just like, I'm so, I'm so much more mature. I'm so much more, um, open handed around mm -hmm. things with my, with my last baby. And I think that's part of the birth order stuff is just, I think the last <laughs> kids get the, hopefully sometimes, at least in this case, a healthier mm -hmm. version of dad, much right. more therapy, yes. much more health. And yeah. I think that's a, it's a really interesting thing to talk yeah. about. You know, you mentioned internalized racial oppression. Mm -hmm. And the first time I really heard that and thought about that critically was in a workshop that you led. I was a part mm -hmm. of a church at the time. And you and your team with the Center for Racial Reconciliation came in, kind of walked us through this timeline of racism in the United States and it was an extraordinary experience and people can, we'll talk later, we'll get to that website part where people can kind of participate in a lot of the things that mm -hmm. you're doing. Mm -hmm. But that idea I would say is, is, is um, maybe one of the most important things I took away from that time. Mm -hmm. I was that idea that I am oppressing myself, holding yeah. myself to different norms that are outside of myself. We talk about fatherhood, but as a man, as a black man, mm -hmm. And something that came up for me, even in that workshop, I grew up, I'm multi-ethnic. I was raised mm -hmm. by my white mother. Mm -hmm. And, but I grew up, my boys that grew up with me are mostly black. It, it's, it's a, we're, we're a bunch of mixed <laughs> brothers. We got, I got three black brothers, black Mexican, black and white, full black. But all of us are like black, right? The cops right. will treat us each the same. Okay. Right. And, but growing up, I never really viewed them as black. And so when I would read and think about things happening in the world as a teenager, mm -hmm. I just didn't apply it to us. For mm -hmm. some reason, I'd mm -hmm. never owned black identity. So mm -hmm. when you talk about that internalized racial oppression, yeah, <laughs> it was just this complicated thing. And as I woke up to blackness and owned it, right, and, and for me, it was, it was an active grabbing yeah. hold of and yeah. um, embracing. Mm -hmm. And I still, but there's still places in my mind where I read articles, think about life, look at the world. And it's still like that group of fellas I grew up with is this ambiguous. Mm. I just, I don't know. Like I, and maybe it's, it's, I, I need to embrace with them. And we, and we talk about all the things, mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, but I really appreciated the way you and your team led this. I'm gonna call it, I, I want to call it multi-ethnic because there were more than one ethnicity in the room. However, right. it was pretty majority <laughs> culture. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it takes a unique kind of individual and team to navigate that kind of bridge building. Mm -hmm. Would you share a little bit about how you've become that kind of person who can mm -hmm. walk in those worlds? And I, I want to hear about <laughs> the cost. Yeah. What does it cost you 
to be that kind of person? Yeah. Um, let me touch on the the internalized racist oppression or inferiority. Yeah. Um, mm. There's a um, a scholar, E.J.R. David, uh, who wrote like an 800 page book on this thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> internalized oppression. That's the name of the book. But when we think about it, um, like a lot of the things that we say to our friends as people of color, and this internalization, this internalized racialization and racism happens with white folks too. And it's called internalized racist superiority. And so, mm, and there are yeah. different ways that it manifests and it manifests differently um, depending on gender. It manifests differently depending mm. on uh, ethnicity, race. And so, um, but that feeling that you've had as, as a, as a biracial man that identified more black than, than the other part of you at that time um that's called distancing. And so, and, 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 mm. and we'll do, we have a tendency that's part of that internalization where we are trained and, and socialized to believe that white is the norm. And the closer mm. that we get to being white, then in order for us to be what I like to call white adjacent, you know, oh, a white, white approved, um, yeah. we will distance ourselves from other people within our ethnicity and race uh, to think that we're better and, and it's a way, it's a survival, what people don't understand is a survival mechanism. So we yeah. do it to survive and to navigate in this world. And so mm -hmm. uh, I did it through education. I mean, that was my, you know, my, both of my parents are African-Americans, I'm, I'm darker. And so the way that I navigated being a darker black man um, was that I was gonna be smart and I was gonna um, master the English language. And partially mm -hmm. that's how I ended up practicing law and, and, and all of that. But there was that 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 whole part of me that distanced myself from non-formally educated people. And mm. that made me feel better. And it made me survive when I'm navigating in that white world to say, hey, look, I'm I'm one of the good ones. You know, I'm okay. You can mm. accept me. And so 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 that's, you know, that's a serious thing. And I've done, I spent a lot of time kind of thinking about researching and 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 um and teaching and talking about this yeah. internalization. So, so I wanted to just touch on that because I think that's just super important. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to yeah. stop you before you get into what it has been like to be that bridge kind of person, what it's cost you. I think for those of us who are listening, we're in this space where, I mean, we're in 2022 now. So we felt all the things from 2020, <laughs> yeah. George Floyd to 2021 <laughs> to, you know, but I think I just want to stop and, and say for me, and for those listening, <laughs> be gracious to yourself and yeah. suspend judgment of yourself. Yeah, You needed to do certain things to survive at a certain yep. level. Yep. You had a certain level of understanding and awareness and of what you wanted in the world and how you wanted to be. And that defense mechanism is not something that you created because you wanted to. You created that way of being in the world because the system it was advantageous for you to do so. So Absolutely. you behaved and did what you need to do, but just be gracious to yourself. This isn't about, you know, judging yourself or man, how come I did that? Because you needed to survive and you were trying to thrive and you were trying to climb the ladder of success, whatever that meant for you. And so I just want to pause after that as, as to be called out. Like for me, when you said distance, I was like, Oh, no, no. I just, you know, I just feel that <laughs> sense of like, you know, there's, there's just a sense of uh, not disappointment, but of just realizing like, that's not what I would want to do. 
Mm-hmm. However, I, I do have grace for myself and a lot of the other defense mechanisms I've created to manage my reality in the in my life. Mm-hmm. And I need to have the same kind of grace around this. And it, it, even if it's new, to hold that, to allow the emotion and awareness to metabolize, not metastasize and judge yourself, mm-hmm. but be gracious to yourself, hold space for yourself, suspend judgment. You had to do what you had to do. Yep. And now, you know, you don't hopefully don't have to do that. But a lot of us are in jobs and in systems where we still have to play the game. <laughs> and that's really hard. Yeah. And that's such, Mark, that's such a great, um, such a great point because um, the whole purpose of kind of being able to identify the different manifestations of it isn't to make yourself feel bad. It's to, um, it really is to, you can't heal from things if you can't name them. And so to be able to name these things and to identify them is the beginning of that part of your healing journey and process. So, so that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So you have been this bridge person in these different (laughs) worlds, bringing, you've read gazillion books. You make this transition (laughs) in your life from going to lawyer to now really giving yourself fully with all of your time and energy as best you can to racial reconciliation. And in my head, it's like one of the mechanisms that you're doing this through is through the local church. Right. As you're navigating, you're navigating a world from my experience. I mean, I don't even know if it's like white normative, Mm -hmm. but being a bridge person. And I, like I said, you seem uniquely fit to be that bridge person. Some of that I'm sure is just experience. Yeah. For you, when you think about being a bridge person, what does that mean? And more importantly, what has it cost you? Yeah, that's, um, yeah, a lot of it is um, just good, I think, mentorship. I mean, when I self-introduced um, at the beginning to saying that I worked with Dr. John Perkins um, and I'm friends with uh, another person who's who does this work, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, and those mm-hmm. are probably mm-hmm. two of the main people who have kind of given me guidance and direction into like how to navigate uh, this work in this world. And so, so being a bridge, you know, um, th- th- I think when we have a lot of conversations around race and around. Um, racism and the impact of racism that will constantly raise up a lot of emotion, a lot of thought, mm-hmm. a lot of history, all, all those things. And so, so there's a level of maturity. Um, I think that we, we all need to, and that we all can grow into. And, and um, so, yeah. so where I am today, isn't where I was five years ago or 15 years ago. And, you know, I've been yeah. kind of in this world, a lot with, and not just with race, but because of, you know, practicing as an attorney, I, and I, <laughs> I think I might be a little crazy. I kind of intentionally inject myself into conflicts. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but there's, um, I think the biggest thing is a, as a bridge builder is just to understand that it's, it's going to be messy. It's not going to, the, the, the resolution isn't going to be what you think it's going to be. It's going to always be something different and it will always surprise you both good and bad. Um, there's, there's, as a bridge builder, there's a lot of, there's a lot of heartache, there's a lot of pain, but there's also a lot of joy. 
um, and, and just, you know, seeing people transformed, seeing people um, kind of have one understanding about um, reconciliation and racial justice and move to a whole nother understanding. And, you know, just yeah. hearing stories yeah. of like this older white woman who, who, who went through our trainings and, and just got inspired and motivated. I remember having a conversation with her and she said, I can't even watch TV the way that I used to watch TV. Mm. Like I, I just see everything through a different lens. And for me, you know, being in the local church, for me, um, practicing authentic racial reconciliation is a spiritual practice. It's a part of our discipleship. It's not an addendum. It's not an additional thing, an extra credit thing. It literally is part of our discipleship because of the history of our country and the history of our country is, is rooted in, um, in racism and the ideology of white supremacy. You know, yeah. you look at our original documents, that's what, that's our founding. And so, and, and year after year, the year of that kind of social socialization, as you become a Christian, wherever you state that you're in, there's a bunch of things that have to be discipled out of you. And that's one, even though we don't like to talk about it, it's kind of, you know, the, the, the elephant in the room a lot of times, but it's, it is a spiritual discipline. It is not an extra credit thing. So for me, understanding that, that that's part of what Jesus called us to do is he called us to die daily. And so that's mm -hmm. part of what I have to die to. I have to die to that internalized racism. I have to die to that in order to uh, move closer towards um, expressing the true Imago Dei that's within all of us. Wow, that's really good. I, my my mind is going immediately. You know, some of the some of the inspiration for the Kinship Collective was thinking about the church in the United States of America mm -hmm. and just being like, this can't be. <laughs> what this thing should be or what it should look like or anything like that. A community of people inspired by the way of Christ, big C Christ demonstrated in Jesus. But I just thought like, this can't be it. This colonial idea where sit down, face forward, as many people in the room as we can, da 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 <laughs> and like sit down, look forward at usually like, that straight cis white male and they're going to tell us who God is and what God looks like. And mm -hmm. I, I just was like, that can't be it like that. And it just really unnerved me that idea. Um, <laughs> and, I, and now I'm thinking about just church and we talk about the ways that people are brought up mm -hmm. and they're just inherent racist ideas, mm -hmm. white supremacist ideas. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like, even on the stained glass windows, it's, it's just everywhere <laughs> that white is right, and mm -hmm. that's that's a a tough uh, tough pill to just be reminded of. John, when when you share about that that journey and your work and watching people transform, you shared a little bit about the weight of that interjecting yourself in conflict. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about some of the most disappointing times? Mm. 
<laughs> so you want me to talk about this uh, numerically or alphabetically? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I know I it's think, there. I think I th well. Let me say this: that what anchors me a lot is um, mm. thinking through the lens of the Book of Hebrews when the writer kind of goes through the, the the hall of fame of faith folks you know um yeah and there's a there's a part of that passage that talks about um how many of them strove towards bringing about justice and fighting for justice without knowing whether they would succeed or not this is like a small yeah. parenthetical in that passage you know yeah and yeah. it's just like it, it, so that for me is it is just I am understanding and rooted in what I am fighting for I will never see mm. my kids and my grandkids probably will never see and so mm -hmm. um so so that this so that kind of bullies me um when the disappointment comes I mean yeah there's there's definitely um you know just times where people will email you they've gone through the training or whatever um yeah. And and <laughs> I, they'll they'll like I remember one time somebody emailed me single space three page email Ooh. went point Yeesh. by point on everything that I am doing wrong in oh, our man. trainings and workshops and mm. and giving alternatives you know and and ultimately concluding like what you need to do is is have people just sit in a big circle and you can and and you can save money if you don't if you don't buy them lunch you make them you have them bring lunch so they're so they're questioning my financial judgment they're oh, questioning man. like everything about my leadership wow. um but all of that and when you're mature you can kind of read through all of that and just say you know what you didn't like what you heard and instead of wrestling with you could be wrong in the way that you were socialized and the way that you think about this, wow. that instead of wrestling with that, you rather shoot the messenger, you know? And so, so, but it was just like point by point, you said this, you did this, um, this section, I think you could have done this instead of that. And I'm like, oh, okay. So they discount it. So my undergraduate degree is in African-American studies. So I'm basically a history major. They discounted my, education, my legal acumen, my ability to to think critically and logically. Um, they discounted uh, the fact that I do hear from God, like all those things that they discounted yeah. because wow. they didn't like what I heard. And so when I first got it, yeah, I was, I was kind of crushed like, whoa, this is serious. When yeah. I composed myself, when I stopped swearing, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then you're, you know, then I was able to just like, you know, email them back two sentences. Hey, let's go out for coffee. Let's yeah. talk about this. And yeah. to go to coffee, bring the email and walk them through point by point and just say, here's why I do what I do. Here's why this is important. Here's how this is anchored in scripture. Um, and, and telling them, you know, after we're finished having coffee, you still can disregard everything that I'm saying, I'm not defending myself. I'm just telling you why we do what we do yeah. and leave it at that. You know, you just kind of have to untether yourself from the outcome of people and just really be clear about why 
you're doing what you believe you're called to do. So, but there's just definite disappointments. That was one of the earlier ones when I first started doing this work. <laughs> wow. That's really, you know, yeah. it's really helpful to hear you say that because you mentioned maturity a couple of times and maturity gives us an ability not just to understand the context of a thing, but mm -hmm. I really think about not taking it personally. Yeah. So there is a way to read that email and say, oh yeah, I have some ways to grow. This is about me. And for me, Absolutely. a lot of times in life, I think as a recovering people pleaser, it's mm -hmm. just like, you know, which is again, that is a, yeah. that is a mechanism I developed yes, it is. because my father wasn't there or whatever. So it's yep. like, I yep. got to manage and try to control as much as I can by pleasing as many people as I can or whatever the thing is. So that's about percent. stability and safety for me back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> when I hear you say that one, another element of maturity is this isn't about me. You know, right. and there's a defensive way that, you know, that I've heard different people say, this ain't about me, it's about you, throw the ball back in your court or whatever. Mm -hmm. But there's a mature mm -hmm. way of you you get the information mm -hmm. and understanding this isn't about me. There's nothing, mm -hmm. I, you know, and part of that comes from, you know, you know that I've structured this thing to the best of my ability with the people yep. around me. We did this as a team. This wasn't just my eyes. And you can lean into that. You can hold that. But really at the bottom of all of that, not taking it personally. And I think that goes for any work we do, for any entrepreneurial oh, idea we've chased down. Um, anything that means anything to us, anytime we demonstrate courage, mm -hmm. there's going to be times where we get feedback that we don't like. Yeah. But to to hold that, to not take it personally. And I think <laughs> that's what I hear when I hear you saying that the, the ability to send back, let's go, let's go talk more about this and not a like, I got to defend myself or my position or what I did kind of way. Mm -hmm. It's really back to what you're saying. This is, that's, you're, you're still wanting to bridge build and walk this person towards mm -hmm. reconciliation. And to me, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. Before you go on, I want to, I want to comment on something. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, because that, so, because you said something that, that's so true is like, you get the critique, you get the criticism. The maturity part comes in not just in kind of like how you're going to respond, but also being able to read the critique or listen to the critique and pull out the things that are accurate. And, yeah. and, and, and here's the thing within that email. So it wasn't all bad. It's 98% bad, you know, <laughs> inaccurate, but that 2%, I was able to actually pull that 2% out and say, here's where I think you're right. And I do think I need to grow or that needs to be adjusted. And and part of that comes from um that so so uh there's a this tiny little book, you probably heard of it, the four called the four agreements. Um I, I just moved it from my shelf behind me. But I bro, that, that when that I thought book, about that, yeah, not taking it personally <laughs> came from there and I started thinking about don't do that at all thing. times and all that. Yeah. The, those four agreements, and I read that, man, twenty plus years ago, and there are two <laughs> I parts to that. Two that, weeks ago. <laughs> okay. Well, for me, there are two parts in it that were really inc incredible. Agreement number mm -hmm. one, be impeccable with your word. Yep. And that's yep. part of it. Like, so you go into teaching or whatever it is that you do, you, 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 as, like you said, as best as you can, you try to be impeccable with your word. So your word is your bond, all those things that's, that this is supported through scripture. And then the other thing is don't take it personally. <laughs> You know, yeah. 
And then the final thing, the other part, the, the third, there's four is don't make assumptions as a third agreement. And then the fourth one is always do your always best. Do, but yeah. in the book, what do your best means is not be perfect. It's do your best in the moment. So if you're, let's say you have a bad cold um, and you have to do something, your best is going to be different when you're ill than when you're not sick. And so, so just understanding that, that your best in this moment is going to be different than, than your best five years from now, or even three weeks from now. And so that's been like a big guiding light for me. Wow. I I was just going to say, yeah, your best on the back end of a global pandemic that completely shifted the way everything worked, (laughs) that shifted your economics, that shifted your family dynamics, your career dynamics, your trajectory. Yep. There's still... You know, I'm thinking about a conversation we recently had with Dante Stewart, and he talked about the creative demand didn't stop, but our ability to produce that level Mm -hmm. of art or creativity has been, I mean, our bodies are still reverberating with Mm -hmm. all of the transition we've been through with COVID. Yeah. And so, uh, (laughs) again, be gracious to yourself. Mm -hmm. How can you hold space for yourself? And, And realize, you know, for me, John, before I read that book, I always like, there was a baseline understanding within me that Mm -hmm. people are usually doing their best. They may not be intentionally doing the best they can. There are a lot of times maybe they're Mm -hmm. reacting to the world around them, which isn't Mm -hmm. their best. But for me, there was this ability to, especially like when I'm reflecting on my own behavior to be like, Mm -hmm. man, that's not who I wanted to be. But mm-hmm. I was doing my best. Like, I really was. Yeah. My best as a wounded, kind of unhealed, unwhole, no therapy, yeah. um, lots of bad theology, <laughs> lots of hiding because God and because mm-hmm. of the, again, mm-hmm. theology. That that best is a lot different than than wholeness and healing. Yeah. And I'm not perfect. I'm still not. I wouldn't say yeah. like, whole, oh, fully realized, whatever we want to call all that. <laughs> There's still lots of room to grow, but... Yeah, man, be gracious to yourself and know that you have been doing your best. You may have adapted some ways of being that don't reflect mm-hmm. what you want your best to be, mm-hmm. but you're you're doing all right. Yeah, it's you're okay. doing all right. <laughs> John, you know, I, I have some friends. I have a lot of friends. I have a, a, a friend I'm thinking of and she is extraordinary, high capacity black woman. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, my life, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put words in her mouth because it'd be more salacious. So let me pull back and be honest <laughs> and just say it like it like it is, right? Without all the details, she basically is like, yo, if you voted for Trump, we are no longer friends. Mm-hmm. That's just it. And she's mm-hmm. in this place where it's like, if, if you have a different perspective, it, particularly that oppressive Whatever it was, if you can vote for that kind of human being to be the mm-hmm. leader of this country, um, I'm trying not to curse right here. We have to put the explicit on here. Then I cannot get down with you. Right. <laughs> then I don't right. mess with you. There we go. That'll work. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what do you say? And I don't even know. I mean, this this is like a grenade. I'm just launching into your lap. But (laughs) what do you say to those of us who have been like in that space where we're just like, yo, I I don't mess with any all y'all anymore. I'm just Mm -hmm. not here for any of that anymore. Yeah, I say good. Um, (laughs) And Mm. what I mean by that is 
that's where you are in this moment. Um, we are wired to grow. We are wired to um, evolve. And so yeah. part of that, you know, going back to the agreements about don't make assumptions, um, yeah. that third yeah. agreement, I, I'm fine with people saying that. Um, and I don't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't ruffle my feathers because mm -hmm. for, for a recovering died in the wool, um, evangelical, mm. that's, um, someone yeah. who in 1984, I voted for Ronald Reagan. Right. And so, mm -hmm. um, because that was the theology that I was being taught. That was, you know, the space, um, the people who were older than me, who I looked up to, mm, that's what they said to yeah. do, right? And yeah. so, wow. um, and <laughs> real quick kind of rabbit trail, when I met my wife and we were talking, uh, and I we were talking politics and it's like, yeah, you know, back in the day I voted for Reagan. She's like, she <laughs> almost broke up with me. <laughs> and so yeah. she's like, you might not want to yeah. say that to my family, you know, at a family function. Oh, um, man. Yeah. And so, which was funny, you know, but um, kind of going back to that. So I don't, I think it's fine because that you're processing, right? And, and, and for me, you know, kind of being, you know, raised in that tradition. Mm-hmm. And part of that tradition, and here was the frustrating part for me in 2016, um, was when I was when I was in my 20s, and people were saying, "This is how we determine who we're going to vote for." There was this rubric, right? It was yeah. it was um, they had to be it had to be a man, <laughs> yeah. had to be a husband of one wife, like they couldn't have been mm -hmm. divorced. They have to be Christian or Christian adjacent, you know. Uh, <laughs> so there's this list, like this checklist, and they were able at that time, they were able to justify their voting for a particular political party based on this rubric. Fast forward, really, to, to, to it began in 2004, but 2007 going in, you know, 2008 election, mm. the candidate that fit that rubric rubric the best was Barack Obama, mm, but mm, they changed the rules on what they were looking for. Fast forward. So that's 2008. Fast forward 2016. They said, we don't even, we don't go by the rules. That's not the rules. The rules are, we're not voting a pastor. We're not voting for a pastor. We're voting mm. for a leader. And so, and so there was a, there's this level of hypocrisy that, um, that was going on. Uh, for people to justify them wanting to vote for a party and for mm -hmm. a candidate. And so kind of the response to that, it, I think is very, it's, it's, I think it's a reasonable response. Like you're going to vote for a person who so outwardly was anti-Mexican American, anti-African-American, anti-people of color, all these antis, you can just keep going yeah. down the list. Yeah, women. Yeah, women like all these things, and not look at scripture, and say, "Here's what scripture says, and here's what this guy brazenly and celebrates about himself," and I'm still gonna rock with him. So I get people being upset with that, um, 
But again, and the reason why I'm okay with it is I know that we, they, are going to continue to evolve because those people who voted for Trump are still people. They're still humans. And so if we believe in the humanity of mankind, if we still believe in the goodness and all those things, Mm. um, then those folks will grow or they may never change in that, you know, kind of position. Um, and so, so I'm okay with it. Plus, you know, a lot of those policies that that president, that candidate um, espoused were anti, you know, they just oppressed people. And so, yeah, yeah I want to be a part of that, you know? And so, yeah. so I, I personally am okay with people saying that, but part of the reason why I'm okay with it is I know that they will continue to grow and evolve mm-hmm. just like I grew and evolved, you know, yeah. um, I wish I could take that vote back. I can't, but it's a part of who I am and, and who I've become. So yeah. Yeah. It's, it's and your uh, journey. Yeah. Part of my journey. Yeah. You know what, man? <laughs> I really appreciate you saying that because I think for me, it's almost like that's some of my spiritual idealism some of like these ways that, you know, toxic positivity, some of these things, you know, they're just these, you know, I'm recovering. I'm getting there. I'm still on my little journey here. Uh, but I think about there's something in my DNA that is expecting and desiring people to maybe be in a different place than they are. Not with this particular mm-hmm. friend. Mm-hmm. I'm inspired by how vehement and particular she is about where she's at mm-hmm. me me and her are family it's that's that's you know one of the brothers i grew up with mm-hmm. that's his partner and so like mm-hmm. we're we're thick as thieves and 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 we've been we've rocked through some real tough times and, and they've had my back in some really tough times for me and so mm-hmm. i love them and i know they love me but i think what i'm aware of in this moment about what you're saying is sometimes in our belief system and and specifically for Christianity, for me, even that word reconciliation feels Mm -hmm. like the road to the end (laughs) of the rainbow where things are just going to be kumbaya and whole hands and blah, blah, blah. And we skip like the, the, we, it doesn't want to acknowledge the pain, the hard work, the, the grind and the possibility Mm -hmm. that we never get there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's making me think about some of the theology about heaven or that place out there when we finally get over there and don't have to worry about this here, worry about that over there tomorrow and not this right here where your feet are today. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm just being aware of, I think I'm coming into the awareness of like, <clears throat> it's, it is a beautiful and good thing to locate yourself. And it's really like mm-hmm. to honor the data, the reality that you're experiencing don't over idealize it. Don't over hope it. Yeah. Don't over optim op- optimistic it. Don't make it super like positive and all that stuff. Some of the stuff is just shitty. It's not the way it's supposed <laughs> to be. And we have to just like hold that, sit in that. And then again, it's like, and that's, and not trying for me. And I think this is why this is particular to me, John, is like for a lot of my life, it was like, Oh, that's the ideal reality I want. I'm going to behave based on those principles and values. And when my emotions aren't quite there yet, my emotions are telling me I'm feeling or experiencing something different. I'm going to go that way and try to force my emotions to catch up. 
And I think, again, back to this idea of maturity, maturity for me now means when my emotions are telling me something, my emotions are telling me what is truest to me. Mm -hmm. And I can try to over-rationalize those, try to point them in a different direction, but they are telling me what is true for where I'm at today, back to what you're saying. And, and I think a lot of us, at least, at least for me, sometimes the theology we've been given doesn't allow us to sit in that space. <laughs> the, the difficult, grimy, shitty space mm-hmm. that is not kumbaya you know even when i think about kinship that is not kinship it is not solidarity it is this dude clearly didn't care he he clearly was no sense of solidarity with Mm -hmm. our mexican sisters and brothers Mm -hmm. it was Mm -hmm. was, i mean it's just ridiculous i I can't i'm thinking about you know this this that that clip it's like somebody kept that one clip for like that week before election (laughs) about him talking about grabbing yeah female right. genitalia yeah it was like yeah. this is gonna yeah y'all this is gonna help make sure we definitely don't end up with this and it just just blew right past that didn't do nothing yeah. and so anyway but I, I just wanted to like <laughs> it's almost like just locate myself and be like yo like it is a good thing to be so in tune with yourself and to be so in tune with your emotions and your values and be able to be like yeah for whatever season that is and yeah. i i really appreciate her in my life and I, mm-hmm. I even more appreciate her husband who we've been down since we were in middle school. So mm-hmm. I really, really, really appreciate them. And you mentioned, you know, this talk about scripture and some of the ways that I had a conversation this morning with a brother, a white brother. Mm-hmm. And he, his worldview was like, I, it was like this hugely um, reverent. This dude is brilliant, does like astrophysics stuff. And was like, yo, but like, if we could just get a non-biased like perspective of scripture. And I'm like, yo, bro, like the, there's the scripture doesn't say that it's all interpretation. It's all whose voice you're listening to. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. like even this, even the words on the page are interpretations of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we mentioned that about how that forms people. And I'm thinking of you. I'm thinking of other bridge builders who have made the way for us to be in this spot in 2022 thinking about reconciliation race racism white supremacy how to be Mm anti-racist and there's some words about reconciliation that paul writes and we kind of like you know talked about that beforehand (laughs) but coming into this conversation i'm like yo these words are so ethereal they have nothing to do with like where we're really at and my heart felt drawn to this passage in matthew 5 where jesus is saying you know jesus has done some beautiful things and people trust him because of his behavior he has shown Mm. this compassion to people who they the other religious leaders haven't cared about he's treating people with dignity people who have zero social capital no power and he says oh these children these women I am with them. I am for them. How you treat them is a reflection of me, which is is just extraordinary, really radical. And so he goes up on this hillside. He's done doing this miraculous thing. And people are just following him. They want to understand what makes this guy tick. How does he think? Why does he do these things so differently than other people? And then he kind of shares this what magnum opus thesis of like, this is how I operate and why. And he starts to talk about the kingdom, this reality. I think about Father Greg Boyle would even say the kinship of heaven is like, 
Or mm. he talks about this kind of reality is like this. It's like that. This is how we function to create this experience. And along that line, he gets to this place where that came up for me in Matthew 5. I'm going to read it. We'll kind of mm-hmm. kick it around a little bit sure. for as much as we can. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him your other cheek also. If anyone would sue you and take your clothing, let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It's Matthew chapter five, verse 38 to 42. Mm-hmm. In the context of racial reconciliation, you know, I think that came up for me because it just feels like people of color on this journey, we keep getting smacked around. We just, I mean, it's just like, yo. So anyway, <laughs> what comes up for you, John, when you hear that today? I think uh, the biggest thing that comes up for me is, to me, the core of what Jesus was saying in that passage is he was talking about a posture. Mm. I, I think a lot of times we focus on the action, but he really was talking about a posture. And mm-hmm. and part of that posture is is not to, and I'll go back to this, not to dehumanize people. And so, yeah, so wow. that part of the posture, and so, and and so, oh, how wow. does that, how does that play out, right? How does that play out? So that plays out for me. Um, yeah, I think those, like those, are all the things that during Jesus's time that he spoke, that that those who are listening they understood, and you know, being slapped in the cheek, being slapped, like it meant more than just being slapped in the cheek. Like it was an offense. Yeah. It was mm. a deep offense, and so. Yeah. Um, it, for and for me, I take that and juxtapose those words that Jesus said with what Jesus did in the temple when he saw the money changers. Mm. He did not turn a cheek; he was turning yeah. tables, yeah. right? He, wow. And so, mm-hmm. and so, so for me, there are times when, when nonviolent, to use kind of Dr. King's language, nonviolent, oh. direct action is appropriate. Um, And then there are times when you have to fight the system, when you have to say, this is not just, you're not just offending me, you're you're offending a group of people. And when you're offending a group of people, I think that's when it's time to to say, nah, I'm not gonna let you slap me again. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to walk two miles, but we're going to stop and we got to recognize some things. We got to look at how yeah. some things are going on. And so, yeah. so to put in the context, you know, in the American context with race and racial reconciliation, racial reconciliation is not this, um, like you, like you said, pixie dust, you know, rainbows and unicorns. Yeah. That's not racial reconciliation. Yeah. Racial mm. reconciliation is about fierce truth telling wow. and being able to to say to those who are oppressing a different group of people that what you're doing and what you've done in the past is wrong and you need to reckon with that wrong. And and that's racial reconciliation. Racial reconciliation is 
those who've done wrong to repair the wrong that they've done as best as they can repair it. Um, racial reconciliation is um, once you recognize the wrong, once you move towards a repair, then I can offer forgiveness, right? And so, but what yeah. happens in our country and what happens in uh, oftentimes in the context of talking about race is people want to skip steps. Oh, they want to skip steps. They, they want to hear a little bit about what happened in the past. And then like, let's just forget the past and let's just start at this moment. Mm. If we start at mm. this moment mm. going forward, we'll be cool. Well, you've just skipped everything oh. in terms of the process of forgiveness. Wow. When Jesus said, you know, that when, you know, that we need to, to not forgive seven times, but we need to forgive 70 times seven, that also implies and infers that the wrongdoer has to actually ask for forgiveness uh, 70 times confess, seven, that they have to confess. They have to yeah. confess their wrongdoings. It is not wow. that you become this abusive person towards me or towards a group of people. And so, so that turning the cheek, I can do all that. I can, I can, I can hold people accountable. I can do all those things and keep the posture as if I'm willing to turn the other cheek, keep the posture of going the extra mile, keep the posture of giving not just my jacket, but giving my whole suit. And wow. so it's about an attitude and a posture. It's not about performative action. So, mm. so I, that's how I kind of unpack that. Wow. I, I, I love that. I, I love what you said, even there at the end there, it's not about the performative action. And I think that's the simple version of faith. I think we've been given. It's like, you just, you give me the boxes to check and I'll go check them pastor. Mm -hmm. So you tell me what I'm supposed to do, then I go do it. That's a lot easier than actually discerning what that means for me. And a lot of times it's um, out of context. Again, it's the same kind of storytellers <laughs> framing the story. It can be like, yeah. I'm trying to think, it's just interwoven with all of the wounds and realities of that human being that is telling us the picture of who God is. Mm. For me, you know, what comes up for me reading this right now is like agency. Mm -hmm. And in this context, yeah. when you are Jews, you're, you're an occupied nation and Rome runs everything around you. Rome runs everything around me. Room. <laughs> I don't even know how to say it. Ream. Um, and uh, so you have zero power. And when a Roman guard walks up to you and says, grab my pack, there's just no power. Right. And I, for me, it's just this reminder of agency. It's like this moment of, Jesus is acknowledging the reality of what it means to be powerless or to to not to feel powerless to have that thing stripped from you. This reminds me of Dr. King and 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 that the nonviolent actions that they would take mm -hmm. sit-ins the the but their direct actions like you said, but there was a sense of agency. And now I'm thinking about yeah. you know back here um, the biggest book, my children look at this book all the time. And, and we, you know, recently we had Martin Luther King day and we, we got to read some of his speeches and stuff, but I'm thinking about the ways that it dignifies the human, mm -hmm. even within the context where they are. If you slap somebody back, you're dead. You are right. dead. Right. You slap somebody back, you're dead. Right. And, and now I'm thinking about like what we teach young black men and black women when it re relates to being pulled over. Mm -hmm. the cautiousness about that but there's yep. an agency there's a way to be like okay i, I understand this this circumstance and, and i will be of maintaining your personal agency and dignity and power 
mm-hmm. knowing that this is the way this interaction goes. Mm-hmm. So a, a false move, and, and I could be a hashtag, to be honest. Yeah. And, but to me, that sense of Jesus saying, you can do that. You're going to have to do it either way. Mm-hmm. You you could you can you can buck up against it and die. You know you can you can be lynched. You'll be an example for everybody, just like mm-hmm. Jesus was lynched and made an example in front right. of everybody. Right. But he said, but there's this dignity of of agency, and to say, okay, you decide. And when they say you, and when they say give me five dollars, you give them ten. Mm-hmm. When when they slap you on one side, you turn and remind them of how powerful you are of how you can't be weakened, that you can take mm-hmm. an, a number of blows. Mm-hmm. But there's this, to me, it's just that, I, this, it makes me smile. There's like, oh, there's a gritty power in there that Jesus mm-hmm. is reminding us, Yeah, no matter what the circumstance is. I'm thinking of people who have played the game and now you're a manager, now you're a director in a mm-hmm. company you're not sure you really get down with. And you're the mm-hmm. only person of color in the in the Zoom room now, in the boardroom, <laughs> as you're litigating, as you're doing depositions and you realize that the system is against you, but there's this sense of Jesus saying, yeah, 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 yes, I understand it is unfair. Yes, this, the, the whole thing is stacked against you. Mm-hmm. However, you are powerful enough. You can come against that. You can still stand. Still you rise. Mm-hmm. It's really powerful. To me, at least that's what resonates right now. Yeah. No, that's so good. Agency, that is the thing. That's what Jesus was talking about. That those actions that you're taking against the evildoer, you're showing the evildoer that you don't control me. Like you have power. Mm-hmm. But I'm yeah. still maintaining the agency, and that's the agency—the agency that God has 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 given you. And so, yeah, that's just a really good. That's a great point, Mark. Really mm-hmm. good point. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there, there's so much here. I, I'm really glad uh, we got this time to talk about these scriptures, and really to talk a little bit about racial reconciliation. We didn't. We didn't do the five steps to this, that, and the other. We didn't talk about some of the things that were on our guide to talk about, but we talked about mm-hmm. as brothers the things that came up for us. Yeah, John, I, you know, I've seen some of your website. I've seen some of the workshops people can download. Would you share with people how they can find more information about the the incredible work you're doing? How they can follow you, find you, and get engaged with some of this stuff. Sure. I mean, the easiest way is to go on Fellowship Monrovia's uh, website, which is madeforfellowship.com and backslash reconciliation. And that'll take you right to our center's uh, webpage on our website. Uh, Also on uh, social media, we uh, our Instagram handle is uh, made for reconciliation. And Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Instagram, I'm prof, P-R-O-F-J-W-J-A-Y-D-U-B. Uh, that's how you can reach me on on social. So, um, yeah, we just, we we are doing so many things, even with the pandemic, you know, trying to yep. be as safe as possible. And, yep. um, you know, the pandemic caused us to rethink how we, how we do the work that we do and how can we make it effective online. So we, we still are doing our workshops online. Um, in a few months, we're going to be doing Reconcile Pasadena, which is a five-month cohort, which you're going to be a part of. I'm just so grateful that That's you're right. going to be yep. a part of that. Yep. Um, and if if Omarion, I mean Omicron, um, 
<laughs> it kind of calms down. Um, we'll be going on our Southern Civil Rights Tour in June. And so um, mm. in our Asian American Civil Rights Tour. And so we're, we're gearing up, prepping for those things, hopefully uh, to be able to happen if we can uh, be able to do those things incredibly safely. So, but that's how people can reach me. And then obviously John at Made for Fellowship, if you want to email me. Awesome. John, thank you so much for the work that you have done to be the man that you are, the person that you are, showing up in the spaces you are with the amount of maturity and grace that you do. It's one of the the reasons why you can make the impact that you can to sit across the table from a three-page single-space uh, accusatory uh, person and to, yeah. to walk with them and to keep working towards the gritty hard work of um, you talked about that radical truth telling that we can get to that place where we can honor the the realities of different people and grow in togetherness. So I really appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much. Those here listening, I really appreciate this conversation with John. And he kept saying it earlier on about every person has a story. And for us, part of the reason we want to keep having conversations, we'll have some gatherings coming up soon is really that you would know the value, the importance of your story, that your perspective matters, you're on a journey, and we can heal one another. Our healing is tied together. Our liberation is tied together. Reconciliation is tied together. So you are loved, and we are family, and that's just the way it is. We'll talk to you next time.